Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast. Stage 10 of the Tour de France today. I am Dane Cash. I'm hosting today. That feels weird. Kaylee's not throwing to me to introduce me. I'm doing that to him. We have on the podcast today the aforementioned Kaylee Fretz in France. How you doing, Kaylee? I'm doing great. I'm, uh, I'm hanging out here. I'm a, I'm a, I apologize if I sound a little muffled. I am in a mask because I'm in the Tour de France press room. Uh, good to see all of my colleagues again. It's the first, first, you know, time on the road for me in a year and a half. It's good to be back. Good to be back at the tour. Even though I just got soaking wet on the way to my car and had to change because I looked like I just jumped in a swimming pool. We can confirm Kaylee did send a, a photo of his matted and wet hair. Uh, looks rough over there. Uh, also on the podcast today, Mr. Ronan McLaughlin. How are you? I'm good, Dan. Thank you. So before we get into anything, you've probably all heard the conundrum. There's fast, cheap, and good. Pick two. Well, when it comes to tires, there are generally three factors to look at. Speed, grip, and mileage. If you want speed, you sacrifice mileage. If you want grip, you sacrifice speed, and so on. Well, Continental's renowned black chili compound has been created to be adjustable. So as they say at Conti, it's all about how you mix it. And depending on the application of a tire, Conti adjusts the compound formulation for the specific discipline. So whether that's for road or mountain biking, time traveling or downhill racing, there's a Continental tire with just the right balance of black chili compound for pretty much every type of riding. So when you're choosing your next set of bicycle tires, make sure they're Conti's with black chili compound. Thanks to Continental for sponsoring the podcast. We got back to racing today, which is good because this is two days of really trying to, to make things interesting, but we actually have a race to talk about today, which is great. Uh, stage 10 did have some intrigue before the finish, which also had some storylines with it. So maybe we'll, we'll kind of go in chronological order rather than kind of getting to the finish first. We'll talk about what happened on the way from Albertville to Valence, which is a place that did have some potential for crosswinds. And we had some crosswinds. There were some moments today where there was some, some tension, some nerves, and uh, the potential for big splits. We did get some splits. So maybe the first thing we can talk about today is that Tadej Pogacar's team kind of had him a little bit isolated. And there, there was a moment where it seemed like maybe Tadej Pogacar might lose some time, possibly. Didn't happen, but I, I don't know. I take some uh, excitement out of that and, and some hope for the future that there's, that there's still some tension in this race. Yeah, it was sort of interesting coming in towards the was it like the final thirty kilometers. We seen some crosswind action in the in the bunch, and it looked for a second like we might get some echelons. We seen a small split at one point. We came out of a roundabout, I think that the camera didn't quite catch what happened behind, but there was there was certainly a, a split in, in the in the group there. And uh, Pogaccia did look isolated. We actually seen Pogaccia himself close close the gap immediately, and I suppose that's probably the best thing for him to do in that scenario. That rather than find himself in the back foot, he just he can he can close it down uh, rapidly. Uh, but hopefully, yeah, a sign of things to come in future because really today the wind wasn't quite strong enough, I guess, to, to really split the bunch. Um, but, you know, we did have that nervous tension there in the bunch. Everybody knows that if it does pick up on one of these stages, there are going to be teams who will want to try and exploit that and, you know, really take it to... Uh, there will be teams that want to take it to Pogaccia, try and isolate him, try and you know, uh, try to catch him out in, in one of the echelons, and there will be other teams who want to try and you know go for for stage ones and that. So certainly, if if we get some 
you know, real crosswind action in, in the next couple of days. It, it most likely won't be tomorrow on, on the roads uh, around Vontoux, but uh, the days after that, certainly Carcassonne and Nîmes, um, prime crosswind territory, and uh, let's hope that we can see some teams get together, uh, juke it out in, in the echelons and uh, try to try to stick it to Bugaccia. But the, the one thing slightly... Uh, disappointing that about that today was uh, Carapaz was actually left totally isolated as well. Uh, perhaps maybe Kwiatkowski had had survived with him, but you know we we hear so much about how good Luke Rowe is in that that situation, but we didn't quite see him there today. So hopefully, just you know they weren't planning for it today and it happened, but um, hopefully we see Luke Rowe uh, in some gutter action in the next few days. It was it was. It was a good sign, right? It was a good sign for teams being willing to take even sort of non-ideal circumstances and try to make the most of them, right? Because that's essentially what they did. The wind was not that strong. Uh, it was a sort of cross tail, not a direct crosswind, um, which can still hurt a lot. But still, it, it was it was not guaranteed to, to make echelons, right? It was not an easy thing to make echelons today, and yet they still went for it. And I think that that's a good sign for... Well, what we've been talking about for for a week now, which is which is all of these transition stages being potential points of difficulty for Tade Pogacar. It's interesting to me that anybody could be caught by surprise, it, and it kind of seemed like maybe the UAE team just isn't strong enough here. But we had you know we had talked about it in various previews and. and other outlets had talked about the possibility for for the crosswinds today, and the weather reports suggested that there was going to be some wind today. And yet it always does seem kind of like the same same cast of characters thrive in these situations. Uh, so there, I, don't, I don't know, having never really ridden in a Tour de France peloton on a day that there were echelons, I don't really understand how how it is that the, the quick steps can always be up there. It seems like they, they're just always at the front in those moments, even when everybody else seems to expect it. I, I guess it comes down to the power and the fact that the UAE team just doesn't have that kind of power for this kind of stage. But it certainly seemed like almost like inevitable. Like, yeah, the kind of quick step is going to be up there. And uh, some of the other teams that you tend to see up there were also, you know, in, in great position today. And the ones that tend not to be weren't. And I just kind of wonder why that is, even if we kind of know it's coming. It is a very particular skill to have, you know, fighting in, in the peloton to, to make the front echelons in, in crosswinds. And uh, it's you're 100% right it seems to be always the same riders who make the splits and always the same riders who don't make them and, and that really is not luck but it's also not 100% you know purely because they've got more watts It's it, it really is a style of racing that is very hard to uh, very hard to teach I guess or you know the, the uh, certainly the sort of Benelux countries and Belgium and Netherlands and that they grew up racing in, in that sort of you know, style, style of racing and and they're very good at it and if you spend long enough racing there you can sort of acquire the skill um, but certainly I found myself when I was racing there that I was always very good at making the splits before the one that actually mattered uh, because <laughs> there would be there would be a bit less of a fight to be there but the you know the the world tour teams and the riders who are so good in the echelons they know exactly you know which which echelon is or which uh, crosswind section is going to split the the bunch. Uh, those are the hardest fights to make the front line of, of the bunch. And then if you're in the front line and you've got the watts to stay there and you can ride in an echelon, 
and that's a bit of a skill in itself. Um, you know that those those are the scenarios then where if if you're stuck behind, there's there's very very little you can do about it. Um, and yeah, I sometimes could make the front splits. Quite often, couldn't. <laughs> were you uh were you in disguise riding for EF at that 2019 tour? Because it's def- definitely seemed like a matter of being at the front right before the split happened, and then missing the big split that year. Sometimes it just seems too good to be true, and yeah, <laughs> quite often can be. I mean, it's worth noting too that, that Quickstep is starting these things right, and and because they know exactly which one is going to be the one generally that they're already there. It's not like they have to fight up to the front. They've, they've already been there. They've already planned for it. And and there is a sort of element of planning that goes into this. I mean, I can guarantee you every single director sportif in the entire field today had a plan and knew what those that point was. But you still need to execute on it. You still need to ha- be in the front. And then, like Ronan said, not just have the watts, but have the skill set, a bit of timing, know which one is the real one, be there at the right time. One rider who had a very ill-timed experience in the echelons today was Sonny Colbrelli, who is battling with uh, Mike, Michael Matthews and Mark Cavendish for the points jersey and got a, a nice haul of points at the first intermediate, only to then get a puncture at probably the worst possible moment on the day. He did actually get up back to the group, but I think he probably expended enough energy that he didn't factor at all in the finale, which means that the points classification, which maybe could have been a little bit more uh, of a battle at this point, wasn't quite the the battle that we we could have gotten if if Colbrelli had been up there because the stage winner further extended his lead. Do we want to do we want to move on to talk about that stage winner? Yeah, we could do that. Mark Cavendish is now one win away from Eddie Merckx's all time record for Tour de France stage wins. Merckx has thirty four. Mark Cavendish now has thirty three after taking his third stage win at this Tour de France. This one was a little bit closer. This one was. I think this one was really about the lead out, which was fantastic from Dakota Quickstep, uh, to, to the surprise of no one. Uh, and Cav had the speed, but it, it was, you know, at the very, very end there, Wat van Aert and uh, Jasper Philipsen both were closing in. It did, it did seem like uh, Cav's perfectly timed sprint, just being dropped off at just the right moment, uh, may have been the difference maker today. Lead out was amazing. I mean, so often we see a team take control like that, and then they peter out. You know, instead of dropping their sprinter off at 200, they drop them off at 550. And that is a big difference. That is the difference between winning a bike race and not winning a bike race. And it was just massively, massively impressive that they were able to time it so well. I mean, Morkov was, was, I believe he was the last man, right? I mean, he was sprinting like he was going for the win. They were so close to the finish line by the time he dropped, he dropped Cav off. Uh, I, I don't know where he ended up actually finishing but i mean he, i don't he was think he actually pulled sixth. his head up yeah i don't think he actually pulled his head up until he hit the finish line uh he certainly didn't sit up like your sort of traditional lead out so just amazing amazing timing from that team today i feel like when you leave the your sprinter off too early i mean if you if, if your lead out kind of fades at 500 meters to go it's way worse for your sprinter than if he didn't have a lead out at all I think you'd rather be following the wheels of somebody else, which I think is often why a rider like Peter Sagan so often just doesn't have a lead out because he just tells his teammates, I don't want your you know, help if it's just going to be <laughs> dropping me off half a K from the line and me, me being in worse position than if I just follow someone else's wheel. But today, you saw, I think, just how powerful it can be when you get dropped off at just the right moment because Cav was able to hold on despite a, a pretty good turn of speed at the very end from Waffen Art. 
I mean, often if you're if your last lead out man pulls off a little bit too early, you just lose all your momentum, right? Because generally they're going to kind of blow in front of you, and then unless you know that's coming and you can go around them without without missing a beat, you're you're going to have to at least take it, you know, a, a half pedal stroke off, and that's enough at this level to send you back a wheel or two and lose all your momentum, lose lose two k an hour, and you're done, right? Yeah, exactly. Like if if you even if your lead out rider doesn't drop you off too early if they're fading a little bit too early that that's everybody everybody's bad but i think the the lead out was you know so impressive today as well because we we did see quick step perhaps get to the front a little bit earlier than they would have planned but just the control that like al philippe showed and and not snatching for it then like and and you know just it's the closing stages of the of a tour de france stage you're inside what two and a half kilometers to go i can imagine it must be just so easy to think okay this is my turn i just have to go as hard as i can here but he seemed to have the presence of mind to you know knock it back a a little bit take it a bit easier i think it was either devonins or catanio who came back onto the front for another turn which meant that al philippe could could save himself for a little bit later uh and then you know that that then meant that the rest of the team could deliver calves so close to the line rather than been trying to uh you know survive in the final kilometer they they were able to you know par right into it uh two other sort of thoughts on the sprint one what van Aert just does not appear to be who he was at last year's tour de france i think that that's pretty clear at this point i'm assuming that what he has appendicitis appendix surgery wasn't that um about eight nine weeks ahead of the tour and that that's just enough to knock you off a little bit right i mean he's clearly still excellent he's still incredible to think back to what he was doing at this race last year where he was climbing with some of the best climbers in the world and sprinting and winning against some of the best sprinters in the world and he just doesn't seem to have that edge this year and i don't know if it'll come around in the last week it's entirely possible but he his preparation was not perfect and it shows that and even a talent like that if you don't come into the tour fully 100 percent, you're not gonna be able to do what what people are expecting you to do he's also you know eyeing the olympics as his big goal and I think that that also has another impact on the way that he's going to prepare for this race. But it leads me to believe that he may, I think he's only going to get better. And after today, and, and as, as close as he was today, it wasn't like it was a, you know, a tire length, but it was pretty close. And I think there are, there are at least two more sprint opportunities in the next week here, uh, assuming crosswinds don't break things up. But even if they do, you would expect Wout van Aert to be just fine in those conditions. Uh, I think he has a real chance to take a stage win this week. Uh, considering that, that he was pretty close today, and and uh, that's despite the fact that De Koenig got it just perfect in the lead-out department. Wout van Aert is also out to defend his compatriot Eddie Merckx's record, of course, so <laughs> uh, he, he's going to have extra watts for that alone, isn't it? I was just going to ask. I was just going to ask. So we're at 33 now. What do we think? I mean, is this... He's got a bunch more chances still. Cavs still got a bunch more chances. Not least is the Champs-Élysées, if he can make it there, which is still a question mark. What do we think? Is he going to do it? I think he's going to tie it, at least. I do think he's going to tie it. There are enough opportunities left and not enough sprint. I mean, if you look at the sprint field, it's been it's now pretty, it's pretty depleted. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, Cav should, he should get the opportunities. I certainly expect him to tie that record this week uh, in one of the two flatter stages. Both stages 12 and 13 are flat enough that we should see a sprint unless there's a big split from echelons. But even if there is, they kind of quick step, you can count on them to be there. Uh, so I, I think he's got a pretty good chance of, of tying the record this week and, and maybe maybe breaking it, and then he'll have more opportunities later in the race. 
I I think so too. Given that you know, as as we mentioned previously on the was it yesterday or the day before on the podcast, we said you know Philipson is going to be hampered now by the fact that he's lost two excellent lead out men, one of which won a stage at this year's Tour de France, and we've seen that today. He was he was. Uh, both of those guys actually want to stay to the Tour de France my mistake but I was thinking sprint finishes um, but uh, we've seen that today you know he was finishing perhaps the fastest of of those three on the podium but he just had to come from too far back had to position himself in the final kilometres so and he had no leader uh, unless if, yeah, yeah. Un- unless Van Aert can really get back to the sprinting level of last year it's hard to see who's going to top Cavendish at the moment Buhani has been knocking on the door but he wasn't really there today uh, I think Buhani has you know a couple of real good riders to work for him and Dan McClay and, and Connor Swift but again they're sort of working to put Buhani on Cavs wheel rather than working to lead out Buhani for the finish and, and there is a, a difference in that um, so it, it's hard it's hard to see if, if we get another couple of sprint stages, who is going to beat Cav? The difficulty might be that, you know, Quickstep just get completely isolated and, you know, can can no longer bring it back for, for a sprint uh, as we get further into the Tour and, and you know, their their riders obviously get more and more fatigued. Uh, if no other teams will help them, perhaps we have fewer opportunities for Cav. With with the way the sprint field has kind of just gotten more and more depleted over time, it, it's interesting the way that Dakuna Quickstep is able to boss these finishes, and and not that they weren't already doing that, but now that there's really no Alpes and Fenix train anymore, there's no Lotto Sudol riders leading out Caleb Ewan anymore. It kind of it's like a it's like we're back 15 years ago, and there's like one team dominating the leadouts because nobody else is really doing it, and it, it kind of just happened by default because of all the sprinters that dropped out of this race. And now, it, as if Dakuna and Quickstep didn't already have the best leadout in the world, it's just it's that much more emphasized when we see them versus well, basically nobody. Like there's really nobody else there that's even close to taking them on. I think he t- I think he takes it. I think I think he I think he gets at least he le- at minimum ties it and could take it because he's got plenty of opportunities. And well, for every for every reason we just mentioned, I it feels like something has to go wrong for him to not win the remaining sprints, right? And Frankly, given that lead out, I don't see a whole lot going wrong. So I, th- I think he's probably, I think he could end up with 35 at the end of this race. The only other thing is the the time cut. He was only 90 seconds inside it on, on Sunday stage. That's the question. Yeah. They do Vaughn 2 twice tomorrow. And then that final week is incredibly tough, some of the stages as well. So The nice thing about the Vaughn 2 stage, I, I think I mentioned in some earlier podcasts that I was worried about time cut on that one, but actually I lo- went and looked at it again and there's sort of enough flat ahead of it that I think, you know, time cut is a percentage of total time, right? And so if it's a nice long stage, you have a bigger gap and then there's not climbs at the beginning. It's the ones that, that with nasty climbs really early that tend to get the sprinters really caught out. So I think they'll be all right tomorrow, but there's still, there's a lot of mountain stages to go. So we will see. On that same note, the points battle is pretty interesting in this race with, with Cavendish clearly ahead as the top sprinter on the pure sprint days. But Michael Matthews and Sonny Cobrelli both battling for those points. And first of all, Cavs going to have to survive those mountain stages. And, you know, Sonny Cobrelli is not just surviving them. He's apparently finishing in the top three on them, uh, which is pretty remarkable, by the way. Uh, but right now, Cav has a, a pretty hefty lead, 59 points, looks like, in the, in the points classification. And he's probably going to add to that over the course of this week, but then there's going to be a bit of a, I think, a turn of events later in the race when, when Matthews and Cobrelli and potentially Sagan, who's not that far off, uh, continue to kind of eat away at that lead 
Uh, Cavendish didn't go for the... He wasn't there in the battle for the intermediate today. So the points jersey, though, uh, at this point, a lot more uncertainty, I think, or at least a lot more action around the green jersey than the yellow jersey. I had to feel really bad for Cobrelli in that, first of all, he finishes third on a mountain stage in the <laughs> Alps. crazy. And only... <laughs> <laughs> just absolutely crazy, yeah. But then only gets the amount of points that is allocated to third place in the intermediate sprints. So, uh, and as if that wasn't bad enough, he then goes and you know punctures in the final ten kilometers today. Remarkably, Little. makes it back into the front split when we did see that bit of crosswind action. He was there in the front split, split. But you know, got, uh, I'm sure that must have taken something out of him in the finish because I think he finished seventeenth on the stage. So whatever he gained from Sunday's third place on the mountain stage he he's lost. unfortunately lost again yeah. yeah it really feels like the tour point system is just it's just terrible it's just so badly skewed and I'm sure Kaylee agrees with me on this one I know how he feels about it so we probably don't even need to talk about it uh, did we really. set Kaylee up here didn't we <laughs> so speaking of points jersey and uh and the rider that won it for what was it seven years that Sagan won it seven you know, I always find it interesting when I get on the ground here at the tour, so sort of what everyone's talking about. And I do think it's worth a quick mention here that sort of the rumor's been flying around for a little while. I mean, I heard it I heard it from probably four different people this morning at the start. Just, you know, hey, did you hear? Kind of thing that he is headed to Total Energy uh, with Specialized as probably paying most of his salary and, and following him to that team uh an interesting move i think a a really interesting move and and not completely confirmed but sounds like it's pretty much a done deal i just don't see it going that well we don't usually see riders drop down from the world tour to the sort of second division teams and thriving Uh, there's not a whole lot of examples of that obviously matthew vanderpool rides for a second division team and does okay for himself uh, but generally speaking, if you've been at the World Tour level and you drop down, it doesn't usually bode well for your results. I mean, uh, Nairo Quintana is a, a pretty shining example of this. Uh, I, I just kind of wonder what this is going to mean for him for the future. I'm sure that the Total Energy team thinks that they're getting, well, a big star who's going to get them exposure regardless of his results. But I, I assume they think they're going to get you know results out of this, more, certainly more than they've gotten in recent years. And it's kind of unfair to, to blame him too much. Nicky Terpster was their biggest, you know, their big signing two years ago, and he's just had a litany of terrible injuries. Uh, but I don't know. I, I guess I just don't have that high hopes for Sagan to, to move to another team. I mean, he'll, he'll bring his whole entourage, right? So it's like it's a whole bunch of riders. It's his brother and a whole bunch of others, which will change the makeup of the team pretty significantly. Uh, you know, I, I remember talking with Jonathan Waters a couple of years ago about sort of how some of the poorer teams have to work the rider market and you know you can either try to find riders when they're young and cheap and pre-discovered right or you can kind of take riders on on their their downswing you can take them on, on the other side of the hump right and i think that seems to be what they're doing here because i can't imagine sagan is is going for anywhere near what he did last time which i think was was it six million five million some some many millions last time i also don't see it working that well um I mean, he just hasn't been himself in a while anyway. And motivation is maybe an issue. I don't, I don't know what the issue is because he's not actually that old yet, right? He's not, he's not over the hump. I mean, he's like a decade younger than Valverde, 
right? So <laughs> he, sh he should be okay for at least a little bit longer. But we haven't seen him at his absolute best in a while. Uh, the other thing that people were saying this morning, which I thought was sort of funny, uh, is the other expectation was basically that he might end up at, at Israel Startup Nation. Um, but mostly just because they seem to have a propensity for picking up uh, very expensive riders who don't do a lot. We haven't really talked about Chris Froome at all in this Tour de France yet because he tends to get dropped on like the first or second climb most of most of the time. He's here in that road captain role. Uh, it's just sort of a little reporter joke going around this morning that that is the other option for Peter Sagan right now. Uh, I think a bit of an insult both to Peter, Sag Peter Sagan and Chris Froome and Israel Startup Nation. So, you know, just insulting all three in one go with that little jibe there. Be interesting to see the impact of Specialized going to that team. I mean, that, that relatively small team and potentially, I, I guess, leaving Bora. Uh, and it shows you just how big of a marketing draw Peter Sagan is. You know, it's he's not winning the, the green jerseys that he once was winning. Not saying that he can't win it this year. He's just clearly not quite at the level that he was 2017, 2016-ish. Uh, and meanwhile, Bora has gone and found some some real talents. You know, Max Schachman is a really impressive rider. He's done a lot of good things, and, and they've they've found other riders who have started to get results. And yet, Peter Sagan is the one who still has all the marketing draw. Uh, we can talk about maybe the other some of the other news stories coming out today. A little bit away from the racing, to kind of quick step, not only winning today's stage, but uh, also winning a little. A little duel, perhaps, according to reports, at least, with their uh, fellow Belgian World Tour squad, who has so long been called Lotto Sudol. Uh, according to reports, Stekunen Quickstep is going to add Sudol as a sponsor starting at the beginning of 2023, which would be... Yeah, it's, it's funny, I feel like there's not that like violent of a rivalry between these two teams uh, outwardly. But I'm sure Patrick Lefebvre was pretty pleased to be snatching this this sponsor away from Lotto I mean, Sudol. It's, it's not the first time he's done it either. He, he must basically just go to those sponsors and be like, listen, you can give me the same amount of money and I'll get you 20 times the, the, the wins. <laughs> like literally, what's it, at least 15 times, many, many, many more times the victories for your cash. And that's that's got to be a, a pretty compelling argument, I would imagine, if you are sitting there as a marketing manager at Sudol. Yeah, because it's it's like I said, it's happened more than once. And the riders who have gone from one to the other have tended to do better at Quickstep than at Sudol, at least recently. But yeah, the other news story: David Lapartien is going to continue to be the UCI president because he's running unopposed, which is kind of a far cry from. The last few elections we've had, which had a lot of, well, there's just a lot of storylines flying around between the, the two main candidates of these last two elections, and this, this time that's just not going to happen, which I'm, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that. I don't know that we want to have a big full discussion about how we feel about the UCI leadership at the moment, but uh, just worth <laughs> noting that nobody's running against him. Yeah, that's a, whole, that's a whole separate podcast, maybe for not in the middle of the Tour de France. Um, yeah. Maybe including our colleague Ian Trelor, uh, who... It's sort of on the UCI beat at the moment. There, there's, there's a fair amount of, you know, the UCI elections, I'll sort of leave it at this. The UCI elections are obviously fundamentally a political process, right? And there's a lot of glad handing and promises made. And yes, we'll build you the velodrome. We'll build you the thing. You'll get a world cycling center. You'll get a bike race, things like that. 
there's a lot of that stuff that sort of floats around around those races. So it's always interesting to see who votes for whom, or in this case, why nobody else is running against him. Uh, and I think we'll we'll find out more on that front in the next couple months. Um, not to say that there's any sort of like big hidden stories or anything, but there's just, there's always backstory because there's always reasons in those in those sort of power struggles, power dynamics. There's reasons why things end up the way they end up. So I know I know Ian is poking and prodding at a few different sort of smaller stories on that front, and and we might have some something on uncycling tips somewhat soon. I don't want to promise too much here because we're just sort of in the reporting side of things. Yeah, I never like to talk about the stories I'm working on on the podcast because then I just yeah. like, oh, now, <laughs> I'll leave it now really all vague. these listeners know. Oh, it's got to be good. Oh, <laughs> I'll no. Leave I'll leave it very vague and just say that, yeah, you know, just looking around. So we're just looking around. We're always looking around. We're always looking around. I uh, do want to switch, switch gears here and talk about the Girodone sprint stage. Lorena Wiebes won her, he took her ninth victory of this year. Pretty uh, pretty dominant in the sprinting field this year, uh, Lorena Wiebes. And interestingly enough, she's the only DSM rider to have won any races this year, uh, which Abby pointed out to me a little while ago. And I think for, for Wiebes, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a kind of a bummer for her that there aren't more World Tour women's stage races uh, because there's just so few opportunities for her to be, to be doing the sprint thing at the very highest level, and of course the Girodone this year, not a world tour race. But she is very clearly, I think, at, at the top of that uh, the top of that field, uh, and, and just another nice win today for her. No changes to the overall uh, on, a, on a flat stage, Anna van der Bregen, clearly way ahead of the field with two of her teammates, Ashley Mulman, Passio, and Demi Vollering, still in second and third. Uh, but a nice win from Lorena Wiebes, and DSM has to be happy that she's having such a successful season considering the rest of the team not so. Uh, and we've got some audio diaries. So yeah, let's your hear diarist. from Ruth Winter first. Everybody, uh, just finished stage four of, nope, yep, full of Giro. Um, nope, stage five. It was stage five um, of the Giro. And um, yep, basically the flattest day I think we've had in the Giro in years. Uh, so that means that I would have rather done yesterday three times than today once just to be honest, uh, hectic kind of within, actually, okay, the start was really cool. We started in Milan and um, you just like, we did a 6K neutral through Milan and it was really cool to go through the city like that. And then after the neutral ended, it's just, yeah, like hectic crazy. Um, we, as Trek Segafrodo, tried at one point to like kind of catch um, some of the teams out off guard and did like a little team effort, but it, it was all coming back together. The sprint teams wanted it to, to be a sprint, which is, which is pretty fair, I think. Um, so then we tried to set Lucinda up pretty well for the finish and she, she sprinted to fourth actually. So pretty good result on a flat day for her. I uh, crashed with about 6k to go, but I'm okay. And yeah, that was, that's the day. Everybody survived. Um, there was actually really not that many crashes. Normally I would have expected more, just kind of on a twisty, flat, no wind, lots of road furniture kind of a day like this. But luckily I think most of the peloton was okay. I think we had two crashes. Um, but yeah, that was my day. Looking forward to some hills tomorrow. Also an update on last night's dinner, we did not get lasagna. It was plain pasta. But the whipped potatoes. Oh, potty after the race too. 
That was Ruth Winder. We've also got an audio diary from Heidi Franz. We're halfway done. It's crazy. Um, and yeah, what a, what a day. <laughs> uh, yeah, wow, what can I say? Well, um, first, we were super bummed yesterday. Um, and, you know, annoyed at Vandenbregen for going so fast because of uh, how many people were time cut. And um, our poor teammate Holly uh, was time cut by like 16 seconds yesterday after the TT. And we didn't find out until um, much later uh, after, yeah, after I'd already sent in my recap of yesterday. And yes, we were one down today. And uh, yeah, after a relatively uneventful four days, I guess, um, it had to go crazy at some point. Uh, And today was kind of that day. So First, I have to tell you about the neutral, which was like maybe the most insane, mind-boggling seven kilometers of neutral I have ever ridden in my life. (laughs) Um, Because we started like in the middle of downtown Milan and we, we just started going in the middle of traffic. Like none of the roads were closed. It was just like the... The, the front, like the lead car and like the, some of the motos, the three or whatever motos that were in front of the lead car were just like parting the Red Sea, like in the middle of downtown on these like crazy cobbled, like giant cobbled roads, um, tram lines everywhere. And like through all of the different like shopping districts and like twisty, turny, just craziness, like cars would be directly you know driving directly towards us and then just like pull off just in time to let us go by it's like just don't mind us we're just forcing a bike race through the middle of like mid you know mid-morning downtown traffic (laughs) in Milan oh my god Brody Chapman and I were like well we will remember this one forever (laughs) and now we know where the shopping is in Milan so um it just it was hilarious. It was so insane. It just became hilarious. And thank goodness uh, Wahoo was hanging out with us because they put GoPros on our bikes today. And uh, well, yeah, let's just say it was the day to do it. (laughs) Um, As for the actual bike race, um, that was also a little insane. Um, Crazy technical uh, circuit lap that we eventually got to, like absolute, like crazy technical, um, dead flat super fast we averaged like 40k an hour for three hours but yeah it felt like the longest three hours ever um because it was just so chaotic uh even with a break up the road just the peloton was frantic and um it was really hard to position and there were a lot of crashes um one crash unfortunately took out uh krista and from our team and she might have a broken arm but I don't know don't quote me on that uh she's at the hospital right now so send her some good vibes um and and then there was another crash that was with like 30k to go and then then there was another crash with around 7k to go and a bunch of Tibco riders went down and um I'm just waiting to hear 
make sure to make sure that they're all okay. Um, but yeah, man, it was crazy. And it was like 95 degrees all day. Um, so it wasn't really my day. I'm not, I'm not good at the bunch sprint navigation yet. And, um, you know, I just figure <laughs> my, my day doesn't have to be today. And Katie, Katie Klaus and I are both just like, F this, like we are, we don't feel very interested in being a part of this bunch sprint. So, um, yeah, we'll live to fight another day. Um, but we are down to four riders now and, um, we're going to fight. We're going to keep fighting. So here we, here we go. Carrying on. That was Heidi Franz at the Giro Donate. Another potential sprint day tomorrow uh, in and around. They'll be racing in and around Como and Lecco over the Giro Donate. Uh, Tour de France, we'll talk about stage 11 a little bit. Uh, maybe before we get into what's going to happen on the stage, we can hear from Jose. This is stage 11 of the Tour de France, and it's my favorite part of France. Yes, the Mont Ventoux is a must climb, but after one climb, I had seen enough. The final seven kilometers from Chalet Renard are pure torture if you're not ultra light. But there's so much more to ride in this region. Climbs with amazing views on the Ventoux vineyards producing lots of rosé and the endless fields of purple lavender. There's silent monasteries, big flocks of sheep and valleys where there isn't even any cell reception. And especially for the bike riders who like an easier climb, there's the most amazing Gorge de la Nesca leading towards Seoul. This May, the departmental council threw a whole new layer of tarmac on the road, and yes, they adapted the composition of the tarmac to bicycle wheels, something the peloton will appreciate on stage 11. The Mont Ventoux is the highest mountain in the region, and the altitude changes annually. When I did it, it was 1912 meters, and then it was measured at 1909. This year, it's 1910. The sign at the top is usually covered in stickers from bike enthusiasts from all over the world, and it also gets nicked regularly. The picture is a must, so there's usually a line of cyclists waiting for their turn for the picture with the sign. For the really strong riders, there is the Sangli Challenge, where you climb the Ventoux from all three sides. There's the easy but longest one from Seoul, the climb through the infamous and often very hot forest from Bédouin and the climb from Malocena. Needless to add that I only did the easy one. You ride through a natural park which means that the number of events organized is now limited since a few years. Basically things were getting a bit out of hand with the many charity rides and walks up the giant of the Provence. To be allowed into the club of Sangli de Montventoux you have to A. Climb it from all three sides, B. Do so in 24 hours, C. Get your official stamp card, and D. Suffer. The best times to climb Mont Ventoux are in spring, although this year it took until early June before the top reopened because of adverse weather, or in September or October when the grapes are harvested. Be aware of the strong winds on the top and a temperature that's much, much lower than in the valley. And those strong winds that are called Mistral, who doesn't remember 2016, when we went to Mont Ventoux as well. The final seven kilometers from Chalet Renard to the top were cancelled due to high winds. And Chris Froome, 
Well, he decided to run up the climb in his yellow jersey. Thomas de Gent won that crazy stage, by the way, a fact overshadowed by the utter craziness of Froome's uphill running effort. Right, so Tour de France stage 11. Should be a good one. Should be a highlight, I think, of the race. Because they're going up Mont Ventoux two times. Uh, and they're taking kind of a relatively underused side up first. And then going up the more traditional side. Uh, and they, they do go up two Cat 4s and a Cat 1 before doing either of the Mont Ventoux double ascent. So I think it's going to be a pretty hard stage. I mean, I'm not a pro. I've never ridden in the Tour de France. But it seems to me this looks pretty challenging. Uh, and then they won't finish, however, on top of the Mont Ventoux. They will finish after a descent, which could complicate things if you get over that climb. You still got to hold on, and that's going to make it. Uh, that could just bring some different riders, I think, to the fore in in the finale of the stage. I like the Pierre Roland story from the rest day, where someone informed him that it was not finishing at the top, and he had been sort of planning on targeting that stage as one that he wanted to win, and then he's like, "Oh, well, okay, <laughs> I guess I'll target something in the Pyrenees <laughs> because you have to go down the mountain." I mean. Is Pierre Alon bad at descending or something? I don't know why. If you go over the I top... I remember him being you, bad at descending. Yeah, if you go over the top alone, you're still... you got a pretty good chance, right? I mean, it's a really fast descent down the backside. Super, super fast descent down the backside. Oh, I just thought that was a funny little side story. I mean... Did, like, Maybe it's all a smokescreen and Pierre Alon is going to win tomorrow after... He's going to go for it anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, convincing everyone he was not going to worry about it. Yeah. Should we just jump into picks? Let's jump into picks. Kaylee? Pierre Roland. There you go. <laughs> no, so so that's not that's not actually my pick. So I, I um, both Mike Woods and Naira Quintana have said that they're pretty interested in, in dueling it out for this these polka dots, right? So I think they're going to get in the move. And uh, I still remember standing at the top of on two as Nairo and Chris Froome raced up it way back in the day. This is sort of like Nairo's. Uh, his, his, when he jumped onto the world stage, really, and I think that that stage in particular, that climb in particular, yes, he ended up losing, but that was when people sort of really, they turned their heads because he was the last man with, with a pretty dominant Chris Froome. So I think he likes Vaughn too. And I'm going to go with Nairo Quintana tomorrow from a breakaway. Ronan? I'm going to go for Simon Yitz from a breakaway. I like it. Uh, I'm going to go with the other rider that you mentioned, Kaylee. Uh, well, I guess you... You kind of Chris left Room. Joaquin Rodriguez, who had a great uh, Mont Ventoux that day, that year. True. But I don't think he's going to be there tomorrow. So I'll go with Mike Woods uh, <laughs> for, for the Ventoux stage. But uh, I think that the mountains classification is a real battle to watch. And again, because the yellow jersey is kind of not that thrilling, I think, right now, mountains jersey is where it's at. That's what you got to tune in for. All right. Right, well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll be back tomorrow after two trips up Mont Ventoux. Well, we're not doing two trips up Mont Ventoux, but they will, and we'll talk about it. I'm going to do one. I'm doing one. Yeah, yeah that's good enough. But in a car. Uh, <laughs> see you tomorrow, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.